had one of those weeks this week, a learning week. Have you ever had those weeks you were just on a, seemed like a uh, warp speed learning curve? And I'm not even talking about intellectually, I'm just talking about life. Things hit you and you begin to, to learn not only things that are, you learn things about yourself, you learn things about things around you, you learn a lot of things. We had a chance to be at an equipping seminar this week, and for me it was very enlightening, empowering, and I, I, think, the, I thank the Lord for the opportunity. This week, you know, I was in my devotionals and reading along, and I just, it just grabbed me where the, the disciples were trying to cast out demons and they couldn't do it, and Jesus just says to them, well, this kind of work only comes by fasting and prayer. <laughs> There's certain things that you're going to try to do and certain things you're going to try to live into. It's not going to come the way it does other times. There's a certain strategy to this. I learned this week that I had to really question myself about my pro-choice, pro-choice, pro-life stance, pro-choice, pro-life stance and realize I've got to be really pro-life. I've got to be more than just pro-birth. I've got to look at the overall understanding of what it means to to love my neighbors myself. I I found out this week that I am capable of manipulating others for my personal gain. I was reminded of that this week. Just happened to be a Lowe's delivery man coming to my house (laughs) on Tuesday morning. It worked. I didn't feel a whole lot better about it. I had all the facts right. I was justified, and I still manipulated him. I apologized to him that morning. I called him again Friday. This was Tuesday. I called him again Friday afternoon and said, man, I just got to, I tell you, the Lord will not let me alone on this one. I want to call and apologize. He said, man, it's all right. Really, it's all right. I said, I just want you to know. I just want you to know. I'm sorry, and I ask your forgiveness. And thank you for doing what probably shouldn't have been done because of the way I handled it. But thank you. Asking the Lord if he wants me to be everything I think he wants me to be, then don't let me be blind, mute, and ignorant. Let me learn all the time. Let me be open, not only to his word, but to circumstances in life. If if I'm saying I want to be that, then Lord, don't leave me alone. Don't leave me alone. The watchman. I'm going to talk about today just closing the gap, identifying the gap, closing the exposed places. But how do we get there? We've talked about the Hebrew word for watchman means to lean forward, to, to peer into the distance, to have great eyesight. We talked about last week, Isaiah 58, 12, where God compares the kind of religion that the Israelites had had up to that point. He asked, is this the kind of fasting you think I want? Do you really believe this is what I want? I'm going to tell you what I want. And what I love in Isaiah 58, 12, he said, I'm going to make you, if you'll do what I'm asking you, I'll make you a rebuilder. 
builder of broken walls, the restorer of homes, renovators. If you just do what I'm asking you, but don't confuse what you're doing there with what, I'm, what I would call true worship. As we talked about in Isaiah 56 a few weeks ago, the reason why we get there because in, in God against talking to the, to the leaders of, of Israel and he's going, you watchmen, and he calls them watchmen, and he said, you are, you're blind, you're ignorant, and you're mute. You don't have the eyes to see what only you can see if I give them to you. You do not have the discernment, the spiritual discernment that you need. The yada in Hebrew, the knowing accurately what I'm trying to show you and understanding it and being up close. And by the way, you're not bold enough to do anything about it if you did see it. You're mute. You're like a watchdog that won't ever bark, he says. So we come to this passage of Scripture today that I, many of you know that I am a, a big fan of Nehemiah, used him often, and uh, just want to read some passage of Scripture here, then we'll get into the Word today a little further. Nehemiah 1, we're going to go 1 through 7. So the Word of Nehemiah, son of Hekeliah, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, which I was in the citadel at Susa. Hananiah, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned him about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile, but also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province and are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept for some days. I mourned and fasted and prayed for the God of heaven. Then I said, the Lord of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant with, of love with those who love him and keeps his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my family, have committed against you. We have acted wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws. You gave your servant Moses. Now, I'm going to jump over to chapter 4, and we're going to read the whole chapter of Nehemiah 4. When Sambal had heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews in the presence of his associates in the army of Samaria. He said, what are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer other sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life and those heaps of rubble burned as they are? Tobiah the Ammonite, who was with at his side, said, What are they building? Even a fox climbing up and on it will break down the walls of stone. Hear us, our God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back in on their heads. Give them over as a plunder in the, in the land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. So we rebuilt the wall till all of it had reached half its height for the people worked with it all with all their heart but when Sambalat and Tobiah the, the Arabs and the Ammonites and the people of Ashdod heard that the repairs of Jerusalem walls had gone ahead and the gaps were being closed they were very angry they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it but we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat meanwhile the people in Judah said the strength of the laborers is giving out and they're so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. 
Also, our enemy said, before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them and will kill them and put an end to their work. Then the Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times over, whenever you turn, they will attack us. Therefore, I've stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. After I, after I looked, over, looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your families, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. When our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated it, we all returned to the wall, each to his own work. From that day on, half of, men, half, of, half of my men did the work while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows, and armor. The officer posted themselves behind the people of Judah who were building the wall. Those who carried materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other, and each of the builders wore his sword at his side as he worked. But the man who sounded the trumpet stayed with me. Then I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, the work is extensive and spread out, and we are widely separated from each other along the wall. Whenever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there. Our God will fight for us. So we continued the work with half the half them holding spears from the, from the light of dawn till the stars came out. At that time, I also said to the people, have every man and his helper stay inside Jerusalem at night so they can serve as watchmen by night, as workers by day. Neither I nor my brothers nor my men nor the guards with me took off our clothes. Each had his own weapon, even when he went for water. There's a lot of things we can do here with this. Nehemiah was a person who, and you can read as he assesses the wall and he goes out for the ride, and I think it's chapter one, further in chapter one, he goes out, and we've talked about that a few months ago, the reason why I didn't read it again. And I think of Nehemiah saying, we didn't even change clothes. I thought that's a, that's a nice detail thrown in. We didn't, we didn't, even, take, we didn't even change clothes. We were so vigilant. We were so locked in. We were so determined. Think about my dad in World War II. He talks about before, right before he was blown up in, in, in January of, of 44, that up to that point he went 36 days without changing clothes. <laughs> you know, just think about that, that vigilant, that, that you, you saw the fight in front of you, and the last thing you were worried about was that. <laughs> but Nehemiah becomes probably when you look in scripture as one of you if you look up leadership nehemiah is probably one of the greatest examples of leadership when you look in scripture and he kind of lays it out of what has to happen in order to get there and i, I want to share that with you today about closing the gap the first thing i think you've got to do is is if you're really going to close the gap and, and become the watchman and, and be on the offensive instead of always on the defensive is one is you got to ask the question Nehemiah asked the question. But see, here's the deal. Nehemiah knew most of the facts. See, see some of us in here are going, well, Nehemiah just didn't know what was going on. No, Nehemiah had known that the walls of Jerusalem had been turn, uh, torn down. Actually, about 140 years, if you really think about it, they'd been, 
had been broken down for 140 years. It's not like it, they broke down like three years ago and the news is just now getting to him. 140 years. Now think about that. 1876 for you and me. 1877. You mean things couldn't get better in 140 years? You know, that was only 10 years or so after the Civil War. And you would think in 140 years the race relations would be perfect. But, I mean, you've got 140 years, right? 140 years seems like a long time, right? <laughs> it just seems like a really long time. But here we sat today, here we are. And we could go on to other things. But he got this graphic description from his brother. And it changed everything for him. The first thing is, you've got to ask the question. How is my community? Really? How is my home? Really? How is my soul? Really? Sure, you can live without asking that question. And you can have the theory that if I, if I don't know it really doesn't exist. Isn't that an awesome theory? Except it doesn't work. <laughs> Most of us wouldn't want to take care of our health that way, I don't think. If I don't believe it's wrong with me, it's really not wrong. But some of us live that way, don't we? We really do. I, I saw this, talking about learning this week, this was a shocking thing to me. Barna did a lot of stuff looking at Barna, uh, George Barna Group or the Barna Group and studies this week. But this one was one of the, the under-the-radar changes that we should all know if we really thought about it very hard, but... But it hasn't. I read this quote. It's happened. This comes from a study in 2016. I'll just read it. It says, while it may seem crazy, the younger generations are not re- uh, are, see not recycling as a greater evil than watching pornography. It's also true that not recycling, as well as most of the other activities, and if you looked at the ranking, ranked above pornography, has a social impact. Watching pornography, on the other hand, is perceived by many as simply an individual choice affecting no one but me. Yet when it comes to assessing porn's impact on society, more broadly, people are more apt to hold a negative view, which presents an interesting paradox of belief. Porn is, is, is fine for individuals, but not for society. I hope you understood that quote. That the younger generation right now, and it's significant would look at you and say, if you don't recycle, that's more of a moral issue than if you look at porn. How is your community? How is it? If you don't ask the question, it really doesn't exist, right? It's not really happening if I don't ask the question. Right? You know, you know that's right, except we know it's not right. 
See, Nehemiah could have done what many of us did. He hears the story. He knows it's been 140 years. He knows it's probably still not very good. He's lived in Babylon, and he's lived in that, and he's got a pretty high-paying job as a cupbearer for the king. You know, it's kind of dangerous because the reason you're a cupbearer, you're tasting the wine before the king drinks it just in case it's poisonous, which is kind of a, kind of a, it's kind of high-ranking, but it's kind of one of those risk-taking jobs, you know what I'm saying? But here he is. What's the big deal about Jerusalem? It's not affecting me. If you're comfortable with that belief, then probably the rest of this message today is not for you. If you're comfortable with the ideal, as long as I don't know about it, it's all right, then really, you can go ahead and get your phones out and, well, there's no football games on, you do whatever you want to do. Maybe there's a basketball game, I don't know. But if you are, I just ask you to, to go for the next levels of things I'm thinking about here this morning. You can do with it what you wish. The next one is this. There has to be a soul-level brokenness and confession. A soul-level brokenness and confession. I'm not talking about a surfacy acknowledgement. I'm not talking about, oh, yeah, I thought about that once. Oh, yeah, that's not a, probably a good thing. Would you agree? Hey, that's probably not a good thing. We all go, oh, yeah, that's probably not a good thing. That's not what this is talking about. This is talking about a soul-level brokenness. And then the confession that comes out of that. So what did Nehemiah do? Verse 4, chapter 1 says, When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and I fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Let your ear, in verse 6, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to the hear, to hear the prayer of your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my family's, father's family, have committed against you. When was the last time you were broken over anything? I'm not talking about sad I'm talking about what we talked about a few weeks ago of Jesus in the garden. He said, my soul is sorrowful unto what? Death. And he's not like, I'm sorry that the, that the Packers got beat. I'm sorry that the Razorbacks got beat by 28 yesterday. I hate that for you, bud. I, no, no, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about this is so deep into your soul it almost crushes you. You don't try to do something about it. And then confession. How is it with your community? How is it with your home? How is it with your soul? See, Jesus was concerned about the church. He really was that we wouldn't get it. In Matthew 9, 35, he said, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness 
when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into the harvest field. There's two things here. One is Jesus went. You got to get out there with people. You got to ask the question. He saw, he had compassion, and he had compassion. He had to see people where they are. You can't just see people and just look around. No, you got to be like a watchman asking for spiritual eyesight. You got to see people differently than you used to see them. You got to see them in their brokenness and their confusion. He said, then you will have compassion. But if you don't want to see, you won't have that. But here's the, what's most interesting to me is, you would think Jesus would be asking us to pray here for the lost, but he doesn't. He asked them to pray for the church. Isn't that crazy? David Blatt says this, He said, I would have expected Jesus to say, you guys see the need. The harvest is plentiful, so pray for these people who are harassed and helpless. Pray for them. But that isn't what Jesus said. He didn't say pray for those who are lost. Instead, he told his disciples to pray for the church. Why do you think Jesus would look at the crowds around him with all their deep needs and then turn to his disciples and tell them to pray for themselves? The answer is humbling. When Jesus looked at the harassed and helpless multitudes, apparently his concern was not that the lost world would come to the Father. Instead, his concern was that his followers would not go to the lost. It was the last time your heart was broken for anything. I mean, really, anything. Some of you know what it's like to lose a loved one, your heart be broken. We're talking about that kind of brokenness for a lost world. When someone says to you, I know you're pro-life, but are you totally pro-life or are you just pro-birth? What difference are you going to make about those who are hungry? Or broken and despaired. How are you going to put yourself in that place? Third thing I see in this passage of Scripture, and again, different people can do different things with it, but the third one is there's an honest assessment, and then there is a vision, and I would even call it a road map. An honest assessment, then where do we go? Many of you have been on international flights over the years. I've I've flown sometimes more than my share, but sometimes you get on these 10, 12, 10, 12, 14, 16-hour flights. I don't know totally how long they go, but they're long. And they have this screen. Many of you know it. They have this screen that says, this is where you are. And it says the temperature outside. It says the airspeed. You know, it goes through these things. And and, and you go, this is how far you are from where you're going here. And this is how far it's been since you left. Wouldn't life be great if you could assess your life and knowing exactly that you could pull that screen up and go, ah, that's where I am. That's where I am. Okay, boy, I better kind of twist this a little bit because I don't think I'm going where I thought I was. Because I said this, but, man, I'm headed here.
Because people will. People may not always live out there what they profess, but they will always live out what they value. They always will live out what's important to them. Always. And you end up normally where you're supposed to end up. And many times it's not where you intended to end up. But that's where you end up. A few weeks ago, remember we talked, we, we, the reason I use assessment here, because Nehemiah, if you remember, as I talked about in November, uh, those, you can go back and listen to it if you want to, but Nehemiah at midnight or at night, he went out and he rode through the city and looking at the walls. What was he, do, what was he doing? He was assessing the city. That's what he was doing. He was trying to see what, what is here and how do we go about it. Many of you know if you came to Uncommon Weekend, that's what we did that night. I don't forget the map or not. Uh, you know we did that that night. We started to build more circle. We went all the way around to 36th and Thomas. We came down to PCHBA downtown to the zone, uh, back all the way up to GCU and all the way back around. That in our prayer drive and, our, and trying to say, many of you, I, I, I would say, many, many folks would look at that, maybe even went on the drive. I, I don't know for sure. Didn't see anything. They missed the point of the whole thing. It was an assessment. It was to say, what is on our watch? What's on our watch? Lord, stir us. Don't let us be blind, ignorant, and mute. Please don't let us be that. What is on our watch? How many of you know about the nuns? I'm not talking about the Catholic either. N-O-N-E-S. How many of you know the nuns are on your watch? The Rise of the Nuns. I think there's a book out. I think that's the name of it. It's called The Rise of the Nuns. N-O-N-E-S. And the nuns, the nuns are those people who have no affiliation to anything religious anymore. They're not just agnostic or atheist, which may be the case, but they're unaffiliated. In other words, they're indifferent. Did you know in the last 10 years, that group has rose by 7% from 16 to 23%, while the, those who claim to be Christian has shrunk by 7%. So they're not coming from other places. They're coming from the church. The rise of the nuns. One to two generations probably removed from their parents taking them to church for that being a priority in their lives. And for many of us, I know we look at culture, we look at things, and, and we're wishing for the good old days. We're wishing, we, we keep thinking somehow or another that those nuns will come back. You know, when they get to be 27, 28, they'll get married, they'll have kids, they'll end up back in church like it always used to work. It ain't happening. And unfortunately, we try to keep getting back to a place that doesn't exist anymore. We keep trying to go back to a place, many of us, that no longer exist in that form. One of the statistics I heard this week, that children's, it's a direct correlation where children who attend as adults is directly correlated of how they attend as children. And actually, it's even waning even more. But if you look in your family and you go, how will my children attend church? 
Studies say it's directly correlated to how they attended as they grew up. Not the only thing. We also know there's other things mixed in there. I mean, just think about assessment. You've got to realize we live in a landscape today where 20, 25 years ago, 61%, almost all giving that was given to, non, uh, given to nonprofits was given to the church. Today, it's 31%. You don't think that doesn't make a difference? And trying to be a church? You don't think it's significant? And I mean, again, we, don't, we can get into all kinds of the giving part of it, but let's just say that's a different world than we used to live in, and it's not coming back. And even the ones who do maybe attend regularly don't even do that, okay? So man, that's maybe, maybe it's always been. I, I don't know. Jen and I wouldn't know because we've been given from right out of the chute. We started tithing. We wouldn't know much different than that for 30 years. I just thought that's what everybody did. Then you grow up and find out. See, Craig Rochelle says, I love it, and those who are in Uncommon, if you got a chance to watch the video this week, you know this is one of his statements in there. He says, you're only as strong as you are honest. You're only as strong as you are honest. As a church, we'll only be as strong as a church as we are honest as a church. And it's holistically. We're going to talk about today an uncommon about the, 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 the soul and the, and, and, the, and the spirit and the body and how they interact and how they are not separate and you can't separate them. Can't do it. And if you don't quite understand it, you'll just keep living in another world. We live in a world today where sin is not called sin, right? I mean, we do. And we in the modern church have been pretty guilty about it because we think sin is not a, it's not a good word to use. We talk more about brokenness and negativity and those kind of things as if Christ humbled himself so he could come and be a cure for depression and bad attitudes. <laughs> Can he do those? Sure. They came for much bigger reasons than that. Because if sin is not real, do we even need a Savior? Really? We just need a good psychologist or a good life coach, right? That's really all we need because it's just because it, because it's not sin anymore. It's just I was a victim and now I need to get fixed. And I'm not saying I, I believe there are real victims, but I'm telling you that thing has taken us over a little bit in our culture. By the way, if you hadn't realized the whole idea of being a victim, and we've carried it right into the church. And what we call it, because this whole thing started about watchmen. We talked about it last week. Who was the first watchman? Adam. The word literally says he was designed to keep watch or to keep the creation, to watch over it. Then he went off watch, didn't he? And we've paid a dear price for that. He stepped off watch. But to really, if we don't believe that, then there really is no reason for the second Adam to come, which is Jesus. Through one man, we, one man we all fell, but through one man we were all restored. And what did Adam and Eve, they, they, they gave us this, so it's really not our fault, right? They gave us the whole mantra of blame and hide, hide and blame. So really, I'm a victim of them, right? So how can God hold me accountable? Because really, they started it. Blame and hide. 
Uh, I'll hide and blame. Oh, what a mantra to live by. Because it excuses me. It just excuses me. So if you're not going to assess, honestly, I don't think you get the vision. Fourth thing is, I think then you, if, if you're true about this, if you're willing to assess and begin to look forward, then one of the things you've got to do, you've got to identify the exposed places, the enemy, then close the gaps. See, if you're not willing to close the gaps, it really doesn't matter what you just found out. And let me say this, Pastor Chaco, Choco, I think it is, has said at a GLS last year, he said, he's talking about Nehemiah, he said, Nehemiah made a mistake, he asked the question, how is Jerusalem? He said, don't ask the question if you're not going to do something about it. Just don't ask the question. But if you're going to ask the question, and then you're going to assess, you better be ready to do something about it. You better be ready to step forward and go, okay. And what does Nehemiah say in, in, in verse 13? He says, therefore I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places. What, what is, the, what is the, Ash, the people of Ashdod are saying when they're at Sambalot and those guys are going, well, a fox can run over that. <laughs> that is pointless. So what did he do? He, he, he put the people in place. Where are you the weakest? Where is your community the weakest? Where is your family the weakest? Because I'm going to tell you that's the place that's going to get exploited. Because Scripture says, and, and Nehemiah there says, they were angry. Sambalit and those of Tobiah and, and, and the people of Ashdod, they were angry when they found out the gaps were being closed. The exposed places. Let me tell you this. If we really start making a difference in this community... You don't think there's not going to be pushback? The reason why many people don't get involved in it. Because they don't want to fight the fight. It's not my fight. George Barn, another thing about him, he's, he talks about the fact he's assessing the Christian church in America. And he said, you know, we're probably way more... Christ admirers than we are Christ followers. We really admire him for what he did, and we're really proud to say we're connected to him, but as far as following him, really, in his teachings, we really... Eh. He, they did a study called Maximum Faith that... Uh, I don't know if we have the graph up there, but the stats. And uh, it's pretty amazing. It's talking about how people that you run into or maybe even sitting in here today... 100% of the people, 1% are ignorant of the concept or existence of sin. Then you go all the way down. Then then people confess sins and ask Jesus Christ to be their Savior. Awesome. Okay, commit to faith activities. In other words, they're going to read the Word. They're going to attend church. They may even tithe. They may go down this list. They're going to do things, okay? They're going to commit themselves to activities. Next slide. But here's the thing. They get to six, and they begin to experience a prolonged period of spiritual discontent. And he said, I have studied this. He says, I wish it wasn't right. And we're going to talk about it more today in, in, in training about that part of it. I wish it wasn't right. But here's where people stop. And he, Black of you would call it crisis of belief. In other words, they stop there and start going back up into the other five. 
because they don't want to go to six. Look at this. Six through ten only make up 5% of people you know, and they may not even be in this church. If you don't think that's not daunting as a pastor... They go, I'm shooting for the one percenters, and I'm not talking about the one percenters of the U.S. economy. (laughs) Go back to the first slide, if you would. You know who in Scripture who looks a lot like, especially four and five? And it's not going to feel good because I wrestle with it too. A lot like the Pharisees and Sadducees. Go back to the next slide. I don't trust people who have not been deeply wounded and have tried to work through it and God's healed them. I don't trust them. I'm just telling you, I don't trust them. I'll minister to them, I'll love them, I'll be there with them, but I don't trust them. I don't trust people who haven't come to the point in my spiritual journey who haven't become broken. I don't trust them, I love them, I'll be their friend, I'll do a lot of things with them, but when it comes to trust in the deep level, I'm soul trust, I'm talking talking about that level, no way. No way. Too much at stake. I believe God's given me spiritual eyes to see where people are on that, by the way. I can't tell you right now I'm at 9 and 10. I'm trying to live into 8, and I know I've been through 7 multiple times. But I can't genuinely say that I'm living fully at all into 9 and 10, but I can tell you what, that is my desire. And I don't know if I'll ever get to that point because it's such a lofty point. It's being like Jesus all the time. I don't know if I ever get there, but I'm glad I've got weeks that go, okay, you're not there right now, by the way, buddy. (laughs) You just manipulated somebody for your gain. You're not there. And watch the march on, watch the march last, not this past Saturday, but last Saturday and see some of the vile things that were coming out of the mouths that I think you can take what you want of where you stand on that, but there's no question there's a lot of things coming out of people's mouths. Well, I'll tell you what, I want to be in 10. I want to love those people as much as I love the next person. I want to love them. I don't want to have disdain for them. And I want to rock and roll there. I don't know if we have the slide of the four C's. Do we have that up there? Do you have that? Most of you know this is something we've worked on over the last six or eight months. I believe the Lord's given the Lord gave me another C yesterday, another circle. So I know you'll be excited about that. Now, but He did. He did, and we're going to get there. But here's my problem. Let me tell you where this is. You see, we're convinced, which is most of the church. Let me tell you where I've spent most of my ministry. 
over there. And it's bad. It, it's hard when you come to, con- you know, talking about learning this week, that's where I realized I've spent most of my life as a pastor in 25 years with right there over. See the word unacceptable? Engaged, awakening, where most people I believe stay, and I wrote this way before I read this study, and you know I did, they stay capped. They're capped. They're capped because they're not willing to trust God to go wherever that is. If I had the ladder out here, I'd use the illustration. But you're not willing to go there. So you're capped. You're capped. And the only thing that's going to get you there is in that, where they, when they cross over, it's called brokenness. If you don't get there, you ain't never getting over there, in my opinion. Some of you in here would not allow somebody to speak the truth into your life if they gave you a million dollars. You've already taken things off the table saying, don't go there, God. I'm not letting anybody go there. You're not willing to be honest. You're not willing to assess. I'm working through it too. And you're capped. So we spend most of our church, we want to know why the world is not paying attention to us. Do you have any confusion on that? You know where I'm wanting to hang out. And I don't know if I can be a pastor and do it. Like I'm doing right now. I'm just telling you. I don't know that I can. I know I'm called to get these people and, com- and compel, I mean, challenge them so we can begin to help these people over here. But I'm telling you right now, if 98% of the people, or at least uh, 95, are over here, and most of you know it, I'm not giving you, it, I'm giving you education, but everybody in here is going, yeah, that's about right. You know it is. And you want to put yourself, most of us are want to put ourselves way down here. And we know depth in our soul, we're not. We know we're not. We know we're not. We let too many things creep in. Two things that he talks about, and I know I'm going long, but this is one of those Sundays I'm going long, okay? This is too deep in my bones. You can leave, you can exit anytime. I have no issues with that at all. I promise you I don't. Barna says, these people are active but stalled. They've got the engine running, but they don't know how to put it in gear. They're burning a lot of fuel, but not going anywhere. I think it's a pretty good description. And the two terms, it's somebody else quoted him saying, I couldn't find his quote, but I, I believe the people who did say that he said it. He said, most people fi- fi- fall into mindless mutiny or helpless meandering. They got a little bit of rebellion. When Jan and I got in the church... We were surprised, weren't we, Jan, about the rebellion inside the church. We were shocked. We had lived hard. I'd lived really hard, most of you know. Jan had, had windows of it. And for a decade, I was gone from the Lord. I got in the church and going, either one, it was because, well, I'm saved by grace and I can do whatever I want to, or I've been against, then we got in the Nazarene church, I've been against that legalism, so I have freedom in Christ. And you're just going, people are trying to find some kind of line. This is confusing. 
Instead of going, we're pursuing righteousness, and I'm not worried about a line anywhere. I'm searching after God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I'm not trying to figure out the line just to step up to and see if I can hang on. And I'd say this inside the church. When people are right, trying to build the wall, please don't become an ash dod person. Don't be trying to figure out how to criticize and complain. We've got healthy truth we can speak. I'm all into that. But sitting around in pockets somewhere and doing all that, I don't have much room for that. I just really don't have much room for it. After 25 years, you've come to that conclusion. The last one is this. you got to become vigilant. I had on here earlier, I told Allie, I had on here vigilante. I thought, okay, that's probably not the right word. you got to become vigilant. Equip with the tools. Man, you got to have the tools. What are we trying to do in Uncommon? We're trying to give you the tools, man. I used, to, I used to think if you grew up, you'd get a DeWalt. I finally got one, okay? But now I found out it's the second tier, but I kind of hurt my feelings when I found that out. But anyway, I mean, look, we got to get your tool belt filled. we got to get your toolbox filled up where you read and react. You're not just going out there every day going, oh, I don't know what I'm doing, but I hope I figure this. No, we want to teach you where, like we do in basketball. When, you, when, you did, when I coach basketball, we teach read and react. You, you teach you the fundamentals, and then you read the situation with the eyes of Christ, and you react accordingly to what you see. But you've got to have the tools in your tool belt. We'll talk about more of this next week. Yeah, I got rid of the wood one for those who laughed at me a couple of weeks ago. I'm going to bring the real deal in here. I'm going to bring Braveheart in here, okay? Are you tired of the self-help stuff? Are you tired of the one trick? You're clicking on every website going, I just need one little, if I can get a new organic. If they throw organic on it, that's the answer. You look at that piece of the puzzle, that one piece. I don't need ten pieces, I just want one. But it may be ten. There's no shortcuts. It's a campaign. It's an assault against excuses. It's an everyday decision to get up and fight and prepare yourself the way you need to go about fighting. If God gives you this vision, the assessment, you be honest, you be broken before him. But most people quit when it gets hard. They just go back down to five, four, three, two, one. Some go all the way back to one where they get to the point where I don't believe in God anymore. Some go back to two where they're indifferent. Some will just go, I'm saved, that's all I need. You know, when I do my push-ups, I try to every day, one of the exercises, there's different things I do. You know, my two most important push-ups, I believe, and all of them are important, but it's the first one and the last one. 
The first one says I started. The last one tells me how far I went, how far I pushed myself, how much grit I had to get there. Bill Heibel says, it's one of the biggest challenges for the watchman, he didn't use the word watchman, is those getting weary and giving up. He said, the arch enemy of grit is ease. He said, grit development demands difficulty. That's one reason millennials are struggling so hard. But he said, gritty churches are unstoppable. The other option is, is to say, what does any of this matter anyway? It's not, on, it's not a concern to me. That's to sign him to come back up. Again, I know we're over. I heard, listened to Irv McManus this week, and he made a statement He said, if small things keep crushing you, if small things keep crushing you, it's because you're not focused on big enough things. If small things keep crushing you, it's because you're not focused on big enough things. stand with me. I ask you to bow your heads. If you would, you know I normally don't do this, but I am asking it today. With nobody looking up, and if you need to leave, God bless you. Thank you for coming today, and if it's your first time, this is not normal, but, but if you need to go and, and uh, we don't go this long, but I am usually this fired up, so there you go. Uh, nobody looking. Could you just, if you want me to pray for you right now, and, as we, and you can come to the altars if you wish, but you'd just raise your hand today and you'd say, I'm in that meandering. I know there's got to be more to this. I know there's got to be more to this Christianity. But to be honest with you, I'm not honest about where I am. I'm just really not honest. Or you're here today and you say, I'm in that mindless mutiny. In other words, I quit thinking about the ramifications of why I potentially am running that edge of rebellion. I I really quit trying to think about it because it bothers me if I do it too much. So I just do it. But today, for some reason, there's a stirring. There's an awakening. If you're in that category, would you just raise your hand and raise it high? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. 
Lord, we come before you today knowing that the call you have put on our lives Well, your word says you knew us in our mother's womb. Lord, we traveled a lot of miles for many of us to get here. And some of those miles are pretty dark. Some have just started the journey, really. Whether it's at a, as a couple or, or their grandparent or something at this point. They made all kinds of excuses and blame and hide and hide and blame all the years. But they're sick of it. And Lord, I pray over them right now that they will be like Nehemiah, where there's a brokenness first for their own soul. Their own soul. And for their own home. But, Lord, I pray also that in this room, those who maybe not raise their hand for them individually, but, Lord, they haven't had their heart broken in years for the things that break your heart. They just haven't. It's almost been so long they don't even know what that would look like. It's all inward focus. It's all about them. But, Lord, give them a baby step. Maybe they don't have to do a giant step, but at least a baby step today of stirring in their heart where they're not so inward focused. Lord, I pray now, even as we sing through this song, Lord, that you would just help those who may want to just come around these altars and just say today, I'm laying it down, consecrating, I'm laying it down. Just laying it all down, tired of carrying it, I'm laying it down. That you would help them right now in the power of the Holy Spirit. In your name we pray, Jesus. If you want to come and pray, we're going to sing again. You're welcome to leave, and thank you for being here. But if not, we're going to continue to sing a little bit. If you would, come in around these altars as the Lord leads you. God bless you. Mm-hmm.